Welcome back to the Red Dice Stories with John and Hannah. Hi. And it's time for another voicemail episode. So let's crack open the post bag and see who we've got on this week. Our first call is from Randy at the Biggest Geekers podcast. Take it away, Randy. Been a while since I've called in. Love the Jenny Green Teeth episode. Um, don't know the adventure. I googled it real quick that she was in, but it implied some sort of Forgotten Realms module, but I'm not sure. Uh, really liked your comment about how in D and D she has the danger potential to just become another monster. It's hard. You got to keep that mystery. I would liken it to how Steven Spielberg did Jaws just brilliantly, keeping the shark out of view. Now, granted, that was due to issues with the shark, mechanical shark working, but that movie still holds, in my opinion. It's one of my favorites and I think it's brilliant. I think it actually has a scene that's quite possibly the best acted scene I've ever seen when the three men are on the, in the bottom of the hole and they're having their little discussion before the shark attacks. But anyway, I think that's how you got to roll with her, keep her secret. Uh, in our recent episode on Wasting Time at the Table, we uh, was talking about the Ravenloft setting. I think that's one of the problems with Ravenloft. As cool as gothic horror is, I'm not so sure that D&D does gothic horror well. In fact, I played it a lot. I, I say it doesn't. It, uh, I think it definitely takes lower level characters. I wouldn't roll in ninth to 12th level characters into Ravenloft because then they're just going to kick the teeth and even the Lords are going to have a hard time with them. They're going to be able to make quite a mess before the Lords get a handle on them or even if they do. So um, the Lords of Ravenloft I'm referring to and I'm assuming you guys know about the Ravenloft setting. I did like it a lot, but I mean it doesn't seem to work all that well standard wise with D&D. Lots of uh, manipulating. Keep up the good work. Talk to you later. Many thanks for the voicemail, Randy. Yeah, I mean, we're glad you enjoyed the episode about Jenny Green Teeth. And I can sort of see your point about D&D being probably not the ideally suited game for gothic horror. You know, because let's face it, certainly your stereotypical D&D relies on, like, you know, you, you kick down the door, you fight the monsters, you steal their treasure. Whereas in a lot of sort of horror fiction and films and stuff like that just sort of rocking up to the monster with your broadsword isn't really an option i mean can you imagine how much less scary like the thing would have been if that as soon as it had appeared that it just whooped out broadswords and like laid about it and like killed it or um any of like stephen king's books if like the first time like the monster showed up they all just pulled out weapons and like beat it to death i don't know I- i've quite enjoyed the ravenloft games that i've played in yeah, it's it I quite enjoy those sort of dodgy monster movies where they take apart the Dracula trope or whatever. And Ravenloft feels very much like a D&D version of that to me. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't, I don't think it's a case of, like, you can't do gothic horror in D&D. You can certainly bring in elements of it, but I don't think it's the ideal system to do that. Oh, no, if you want to do, like, one of the dark sort of gothic stories that's like all people on a windswept hill and that's secrets right. and threats that's my job D's not ideal for that but to be honest that's not really a game i'd want to be playing in anyway see, it's fine see, to watch it as a movie but it doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me see whereas i, I would quite enjoy that game and like i try and bring in horror elements into my D game but I don't run it as a horror game as such. It's very much a and d game with little bits of sort of elements from different horror genres, particularly that Lovecraftian sort of horror incorporated in. But it's always a, a fantasy game with elements of that in it. But thank you again for your call, Randy. Next up, we have a call from Kevin of the Red Caps podcast. Take it away, Kevin. Hey, John. Hey, Hannah. Just finished your episode on five things to put in your DM pack. 
As soon as you mentioned index cards, I was nodding along and going, yep, John gets me. Um, I would ex uh, suggest expanding the index cards um, and making them your character sheets, your pre-gens, your list of names, everything that you have written down coming to a game. Bring it in a nice little recipe box, all nice and organized, all index cards. The other thing I would add is paper clips. They're very useful for connecting cards, especially if you are handing out magical items that are written on a different card. So they can paperclip it to their main character sheet. As well, they're good for tracking HP or arrows or spell slots, anything like that. Anyhow, great episode. Keep up the great work. We'll talk again soon. Take care. Hey, Kevin, glad you enjoyed the episode. Yeah, I'm a massive fan of index cards. One of the things I like to do is I've got a lot of those little, like, bulldog clips. And what you can do is you can clip your sort of stack of index cards down the shortest side, and then it sort of opens up like an impromptu book. So you can sort of, like, flip through it as you would do a book. But obviously you can just unclip the bulldog clip at any time to move index cards out of it or move them in. I don't tend to go the sort of whole way of having all my carrot sheets and everything on it. But I certainly have used index cards for a lot of my notes. And my preferred method of storing things online, which is a tiddly wiki, is effectively just like a hypertext linked version of a load of index cards, really. I was going to say, the actual pen and paper index cards, to me, sounds like a complete and total nightmare. Oh, I'm all I about have, them index cards. But I have one spreadsheet for a game on which I keep everything, and it may have several pages, like there'll be a page with the character sheets. Page. It's effectively the same thing. Yeah, it's just I'm different just methods of doing it. doing it, it on my computer because otherwise I will lose it or get stuff out of order because I'm that kind of disorganised person whereas John's several times run games with index cards and if you're prepared to put in the work of keeping those index cards up to date it is an amazing way to keep your system going and yeah. give you players easy access to a lot of information Yeah, and I think for me the, the reason the index cards edge out something like your more standard notebook, which I am a fan of, is like I say with these clips, I can clip it together so it serves the same function as a book. But if I want to like add stuff in at different points, I can just slide an extra card in there. I'm not going to be like, oh, I've got no pages between this, so I've got to like reference a different page somewhere else in my notebook. And it might be that you're a GM who prefers like a project book or a ring binder folder or any combination of computer programs, as long as it works for you and you've got an easy way to get uh, all of your notes in your game, it doesn't matter really what you're using it, like what method you're using to do it. Oh yeah, entirely agree, Look, I mean, the whole idea of having all these notes is it facilitates you running the game. So if you're using a method and it's not making it easier for you to do or it's making things more difficult, you need to either tweak that method or find one that suits you better mm -hmm. or sort of like adapt to using it if you really want to go through with it. So if you pick up index cards and you're like, oh, this really isn't working for me, just put it down, find something else that works for you. But like I say, I love the index cards. I love my tiddly wikis online and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Anything that lets me sort of add to notes as I go along in sort of like different areas, but also lets me easily track and cross-reference information has got to be a winner for me. So, yeah, thanks for the voicemail, Kevin. Who's next, John? Next up, we've got Jason of the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Take it away, Jason. 
I realize I never called you on the maps as visualization or visual story building where Hannah did the map. But I have to tell you, listening to it as a podcast instead of YouTube, I was able to imagine the D4s as, you know, D, D8s or D12s. And so, you know, Hannah elaborated and, and ruined my mental image. But that's okay because it was still a great episode. And I'll just use Games Workshop Scatter Dice in the future instead of those hard D4s. But great content you guys have been putting out lately. I know I haven't been calling much, but I have been listening to it all. Really enjoy it and keep up the great work. Cheers again for the voicemail, Jason. Um, if you don't want to use D4s, then by all means add an extra two options and use D6s. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you're not using D4s and you're like doing it on your floor like we did, not using those like pointy dice of doom is certainly means it's going to be less likely that you're going to accidentally tread on your map and like puncture your foot on those devilish dice of doom. I'll point out that I did also use the lid of a really useful box as a tray to make sure that those pointy d4s did not escape. Indeed. Great list of things, the uh, jams grab bag. I, I don't know. I'm driving. I, I don't remember what you called it, but it was a great list. As far as dice go, remember. Now, I wouldn't do this as a GM, I don't think. And I'd probably get annoyed if a player did this. So this might be better if you're just playing solo. <laughs> but if you have the a, a simple D12 and D20, you can do any die, any dice combination with those, right? The D12 does a D6 and a D12. The D20, well, actually, they can both do a D4, a D8. The D20, of course, can do a D10, a D20, a D100, and a D30, you know, and, and some of those combinations require the two to be rolled together. But, yeah, so you can get away with just carrying two dice. And, and who doesn't always have two dice in their pocket? I mean, come on. Really? Anyhow, great show. Looking forward to the next one. You guys take care. Keep up the great work. Thanks again. That was, of course, Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I think you make a very good point about only carrying a couple of dice, and it's not something I'd considered, to be honest. No, it's a really, really good tip, and... I did know this, but it's not something I've used for 20 years because I live with another gamer and we have an enormous bucket of dice between us. Yeah, and to be fair, I've, I just sort of tend to, like, if I'm if I'm going to a quick game now, I just tend to use, like, an app on my phone because I've always got my phone <laughs> with me rather than, like, carry a load of dice around. But, yeah, I think you could certainly do worse than, like, for an emergency or whatever, you know, drop a couple of dice in, like, your pocket and you are good to go, as Jason rightly said. So might be worth considering if as we said when we were doing the episode you may be going to a con and you've got to travel light maybe going on trains or public transport or whatever and you can't carry like massive suitcases full of books and dice and stuff like that with you or for that matter if you just want to invest in some of those really really nice fancy dice but you can't afford a full set yeah you could just get those too I mean, I suppose if, if space isn't the issue, maybe you want to buy some of those, like, really nice, sort of, like, big, like, decorative dice. Mm-hmm. But like you say, they can be quite expensive, so mm-hmm. quite big. But if you only need two of them, maybe they're a little bit more within reach. Obviously, it's down to your preference about what you choose to use as a, like, random determiner in your games. But I think Jason definitely makes a good point there, and it could help save a few pennies, which I'm always in favour of. <laughs> And next up, I think we've got someone who's a first-time caller into the program. So I'll let them introduce themselves. 
Hi, John and Anna. This is BJ from the Arcane Alienist podcast. Uh, I've been listening to you guys for a while. Haven't ever called in. Uh, on your uh, things you keep in your GM's kit, that was a great list. One thing I keep in mind, uh, my sort of bag or my go bag as a, as a GM, uh, if I have any house rules or common procedures that I use in, in, in a system, I will keep a number of handouts, just, just a stack of handouts of my house rules or, or the way I tend to interpret or rule on common issues just to give to players uh, either at session zero, session one, or if a new player shows up, I've got some extra ones on hand just to say, hey, here's kind of a quick thing you might want to keep in mind of. You know, if we're playing a certain edition or a certain game system, here are sort of the, the house rules or the exceptions you'll need to be aware of. Let me know if you have any questions. So that's another thing to keep that's handy to have. Anyway, great episode. Thanks. Hi, BJ. Really glad to hear from you. Always nice to hear new callers. Always nice to hear the old callers. Indeed. The um, thing about having your house rules on a sheet for everyone to see, Mm. that's a really, really good tip. Um, Also on that sheet, I would suggest having a very quick, here's how you do a skill check, here's how you do a combat roll, here's how you do a spell roll. In the simplest terms it can be put just to remind people yeah i mean i think effectively what we're talking about is cheat sheets really aren't we you know Mm -hmm. and i'm a massive fan of cheat sheets um a lot of the games are i like like fate etc have sort of rule summary sheets in them if not things like DD, you know you have gm screens that have various charts on them if you can have like a little a4 sheet that's got like here's the basic rules you need to know that you can just give out to people especially at cons that can save an awful lot of time and this is something that where it's like consistent across your game you can work it into the character sheets as well yes, if you're of course. somebody that enjoys designing character sheets having all those little notes of this is what this is for if you can get them succinct and all on one character sheet it does work really well yeah like the Powered by the apocalypse stuff yeah, but like the playbooks, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it works very well because you've got every, all the sort of facts and the rules you need there, sort of under your immediate command. So it saves time flipping up books and looking through them and trying to find obscure rules in your rule books during the game. And anything that saves you having to like flip through a massive book in the middle of a game, I'm a huge fan of. So thank you very much for the call, of BJ. Greatly appreciated. And next up, we've got a call from Joe over at the Hindsightless Podcast. Take it away, Joe. Hey, what's up, you two? Another amazing episode. Uh, Jenny Greenteeth. Love it. Absolutely love it. I recently stumbled across a YouTube channel called Scary Fairy Godmother, and she just tells stories of fairies and goes through basically like a fairy bestiary it's amazing it's a huge source of inspiration like i could run a million campaigns off of some of these stories it's really cool i recommend it uh check it out anyway great stuff peace out hey there joe glad you enjoyed the episode thank you very much for the recommendation of that youtube channel scary fairy godmother we're trying to delve into folklore and sort of fairy tales and stuff like that a bit more for the friday episodes so we will definitely be checking that out since both myself and hannah are fairly interested in these sort of like ancient legends and these old like folklores and monsters and fairy tales Another one that I'd recommend for anyone that's not already found it is called John Solo, and he does 
videos called The Messed Up Origins of, yeah. insert fairy tale here, or uh, just The Weird Origins of, and some of them are really, really interesting. One of the things I also like is I quite like the sort of SCP foundation, so creepy pasta stories, which are always about this secretive foundation that confines all these strange monsters and sort of of urban myth and stuff like that. So it's not strictly speaking ancient like mythology mm-hmm. or folklore, but it's like a modern sort of interpretation of that and like people doing their own like creepy little stories all loosely tied together by this sort of shared patchwork mythology which i find really interesting and although there's not a single youtube site for it if you just like do a quick search for scp foundation on youtube you'll get a bajillion videos up (laughs) talking about various different creatures obviously as with all these things the quality varies somewhat but if you're sifting (laughs) through it yeah if you're sifting through it you can occasionally find like some real like gems within the muck so to speak but yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that you can find. And again, thank you very much for that recommendation, Joe. And I think we've got Jason back from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast now, talking about our recent episode about Jenny Greenteeth. Great episode. Um, yeah, it does fall into that hag thing a little bit, those stereotypes. But she's an interesting creature. And, and, you know, over there, it's a really common thing. Not so much over here in the States. So some... Uh, DM over here in the States might get get away with a little bit more using that kind of thing. So, depending how they twisted it. But, great episode as always. Looking forward to your next one. Hi, Jason. Thanks for the message. Um, yeah, never be afraid to use stereotypes in your games. Just be aware that you are doing when you're using them and consider how you're using them. And, like, have fun with it (laughs) really it doesn't matter what you're doing with your game as long as it's entertaining yourself and your players and just remember all old women in dnd are witches (laughs) yeah that that particular one is just john's thing it's not that major a thing but it comes up a lot if you role play with john (laughs) that's right because it's true Hey, you two awesome episodes on spaceships and robots in your D&D game. I'm fully on board. Uh, yeah, major spoilers for all you Wheeler Woe fans out there. But <laughs> where the Wheeler Woe campaign, my campaign ended before the bad times hit, the party had just acquired the use of a massive flying fortress, which used to be the top of a mountain. Uh, it is powered by the soul of a slain gold dragon. So what I'm getting from what you're telling me there, Joe, is that your campaign is like low fantasy, like down and dirty, sort of gritty low fantasies. Would that be right? It has cloaking capabilities. It has teleportation detectors. It The soul of the dragon is also basically an AI that controls all the, you know, all the operations of the flying fortress. Okay, maybe not. And I didn't go the alien technology route. I went the ancient high technology route. I sort of modeled it and was inspired off of the Vamana from Hindu legends. But at the end of the day, spaceship, spaceship, peace out. All joking aside, Joe, I've got to agree with you. Spaceships are cool. You know, as I said in the episode, 
why would you not want to bring a bit of that coolness into your games? And I've got to admit, that floating fortress, like I say, all joking aside, does sound pretty cool. And I love the idea of like a mountaintop being turned upside down and having like a sort of fantasy version of an AI. I think mm-hmm. that sounds really cool. And I don't know whether Wheel or Woe is on like permanent hiatus or whether you're going to get back to it. Hopefully, maybe you'll be able to get back to it and continue that story, and we'll be able to find out what's going on with that floating fortress in the future. Thanks again for your call, dude. And next up, we have a call from Spencer at the Keep Off the Borderlands podcast. Take it away, Spencer. Hi, John. Hi, Hannah. Hope you're both well. It's been a while, but I've been really enjoying your episodes recently. Um, The map stuff, I mean, uh, who doesn't love a good map? I have particular fond memories of the fighting fantasy one, the map of Titan. I know it wasn't a particularly detailed map, but um, I remember having lots of fun trying to figure out where all the books took place. Yeah, I'm with you on that one, Spencer. I loved the maps of Titan and, and the drilled-in maps of like Black Sand and places like that that were in the advanced fighting fantasy and, of course, the fighting fantasy books. And I think the thing they did really well was, even though they weren't that detailed, they sort of captured that, you know, like that here-be-monsters vibe Mm -hmm. of, like, old, sort of, like, old-timey maps where, you know, you'd look at them and you'd be like, oh, what is in the Scorpion Desert? Well, scorpions, obviously, but what other stuff Mm -hmm. is there there? And it really sort of added a work to sort of like an aid to like spur on the imagination and really enhanced the books because you could look at like these places that like you you've not been to any of the game books and you could be like oh i wonder if they're in a good game book that takes place there or oh, how they do because that sounds really interesting oh there's a swamp here i wonder if there'll be a book set in that and you could almost sort of work out where you wanted to go on the map and like get the game books that went to the places you were interested in so the map was almost sort of like a catalogue of your explorations as well which i thoroughly enjoyed and obviously lord of the rings and stuff like that um maps have always been a great thing for me and they really capture the the sort of exploration vibe which for me personally is one of the things i really love about D and fantasy games like that um loved the jenny green teeth episode um, certainly look forward to more folkloric stuff if you've got any of those planned yeah we are enjoying doing the folklore Fridays and we are going to continue doing them but they do take a little bit longer to put together yeah because the research and stuff yeah, yeah. It, and we are trying to do a bit more work on them so they might not be out as regularly as the Fiend or Foe Fridays were. Yeah, and I mean, I think as well, there's certain sort of legends that we're quite familiar with. I mean, the mm-hmm. the Jenny Greenteeth one, I was fairly familiar with, and I think you were as well. So that didn't take us as long to pull together. Whereas if it's an episode based on folklore that we're not quite so familiar with, then we'll still want to do it, because obviously we'll be finding out more, but it might take us a bit longer to get it together. Also, if anybody's got any particular monsters that they want us to look at for that, yeah, just please, please just let us know. Yeah, dro- drop us a line in. There'll be details at the end of the show as to how you can get in touch, like Spencer's doing now. But anyway, I'm going to butt out and let him finish what he was saying. And yes, spaceships in fantasy. Um, the Black Hack yeah, is a really good example, actually. I, I like the way it's handled there, just that suggestion of the uh, the radioactive spaceman what that might um suggest or um you could ignore it completely because as you say it's just that one entry 
And um, I remember in a session that we were playing of the Black Hack. Um, I don't think you were, you were playing at the time, but we were exploring some caves, which um, suddenly changed into kind of uh, metallic corridors and these oddly, you know, hexagonal rooms with kind of plimps and flashing lights all over the place. And obviously, as as players, you realise that you're exploring uh, a buried spaceship but as characters you know within the context of the game it's just a a very interesting and different environment to explore and you can obviously develop on that or you can just leave it as this uh you know one-off adventure thing and you could build on that as the gm or you can just plant that little seed in the minds of the players and let it work its magic there um you know they may want to embrace it and as you say try and use this spaceship or whatever and go off in any number of directions it really blows open the whole universe of possibilities but um yeah let them do the work anyway really enjoy the show take care yeah, thank you very much for the call, Spencer. And I think you're exactly right. One of the things, as I was saying in the episode, that I enjoy about spaceships and robots and stuff like that, those anachronisms in D&D, is that you only really have to lean into it as much as you want. If you want to like get involved with the players taking over a spaceship and flying around, or you want to do like a fantasy version like Joe from Silas was talking about earlier on in this episode, then you can do that. If you just want it to be like a bit of a weird, freaky setting for a dungeon, then you can do that as well. You don't have to go into all the in-depth sort of nitty-gritty of people flying a spaceship and stuff like that. If you don't want to, it could just be a cool backdrop for adventures in a fantasy game. The other thing that it did get me thinking about, though, is when you introduce a science fiction element into a fantasy game, you then have to ask yourself, how does that interact with magic? Does that mean that magic is actually super-duper technology? Or does it mean that magic exists in a world that also has aliens? Because if it is super-duper technology, and the other worlds are way ahead in that technology compared to the world your player characters come from... They should have magic. They should also have magic, yeah. and they should be able to wipe the floor with you. But if their world doesn't have magic and yours does, then I could see some like epic battles of dragon versus spaceship. Yeah, you know? yeah. And again, this—I dis- mean, that's basically the Avatar movies premise. I'm, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, if you want to really get into it, you do have to sort of consider that. But as I was just saying, you only have to lean into it as much as you want. Like, if literally all you're using a spaceship for is, like, a dungeon backdrop, you might not have to worry about how technology and magic interact. Whereas if you want to delve more deeply into it, you do have to put a little bit more thought into that. I think you need to have at least a couple of answers prepared for your players, even if it's you're going to have to find out in-game. I don't know, though. Do you really? Because, I mean, like, with the advanced... The example we gave in the episode, you know, where we were saying about um, you could have a ray gun that works like a wand. I'm not saying that your players are guaranteed to be asking these questions. I'm just saying that if you sat down with four other people, odds are one of them's going to want to know. Yeah, but these, all, all I'm saying is that if you, if, if let's say you've run your game, the players have found a ray gun that works like a magic wand, 
and one of the players turns around and says, like, "Oh, so is this magic or is it technology?" What? How would the player know? How would the player character know? I'm I'm not even saying you have to have good answers. I'm just saying you have to have some answers for those questions because they are going to come up. Yeah, but I think, I think it depends in that case who's asking. All right, the question. you win. Who's next? No, 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 no. I'm never going to discuss this now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. But I just think it comes down to who's asking the questions because mm-hmm. if the, if the player characters get to a point where they've got enough knowledge to ask that question i think that's fair enough you do have to have some answers if it's like the player asking it but the character has no idea then you don't really have to answer it i don't know i think you kind of want to discuss the adventure with the gm to some degree out of character and that's that's fine but what i'm saying is if if part of like using the future at least at the end of the story if you're not going to be using it again later then maybe see that's where I, at the end of the story oh. I, i'd just be like well maybe you'll find out in the next campaign because i now know this is a mystery that you're interested in why would i not use it in a future game because i think certainly i mean obviously I, i'm just talking from my own like personal point of view but for me a large part of the appeal of that would be the mystery of trying to find that out and if you don't find it so, out, you don't find it out if the player asks you your answer would be does the player group want more of this in-game? If the answer to that is yes, then they're going to have to find out the rest of the answers later. Oh, yeah, if it's you're no, absolutely right, yeah. You can just say, oh, here's what I put in, here's why I put it in, let's move on and do some more fantasy. Yeah, I think you're, abso- that's, I think you're, that's I think you're absolutely right. That's all I was right. trying to get across to you, darling. I, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. If, if you're going to have more of it come up further down the road and like the end goal is to find out what's going on, then you need to... Maybe not have everything lined up, as you were rightly saying at the start, but you need to at least have an idea of like where you're going to be heading with that. Whereas, like you say, if you're choosing it as a throwaway thing, you don't really need to be quite so prepared there as all go. that. Right, so let's see who we've got next. John and Hannah, Hannah and John, it's Barney. Um, today I've got something. I've got something to call in about, and I'm doing so in a timely fashion. It's Jenny Green Teeth. I think the the folklore uh, episodes, I'm all for those. So, um, you know, keep them coming. Um, but Jenny Greenteeth, you know, that, that chimes with me. So it's Tipsy Friday and I'm going to tell you why Jenny Greenteeth is of some significance to me in my recent gaming life. Ooh, we'd love to hear it. You may be aware, listeners may be aware that I've been working on League of Eternal Guardians game system, which started life through, kind of, through discussion with Andy Goodman. And we had this idea for the Eldritch Organ, and we've run some sessions under the aegis of the Eldritch Organ. And for the Eldritch Organ, all players contribute a range of different adventure seeds. And in the first League of Eternal Guardians game, one of the players uh, nominated Jenny Greenteeth as their their eldritch entity. And I rolled that randomly. So they were up against Jenny Greenteeth. So from all of these disparate and randomly selected adventure seeds I as the GM was cobbling together a scenario and in this scenario 
Jenny Greenteeth was was a member of the aristocracy in um, on the Scot, you know, in England on the Scottish border. I think in Carlisle, and she was, you know, she was passing as a human being, and maybe had been for some time, and she was responsible for getting back from St Gallen, getting back um, an item that belonged in Carlisle, but was an eldritch, uh, an eldritch nuclear bomb. And you can hear this adventure, this scenario, as an actual play on Grizzly Peaks Radio. It's also uh, repeated in Expeditions to the Grizzly Peaks as well. So you can hear all of this. Everyone can hear this. And um, basically, the, the bomb was set off, and that was, that was the end of that. But, yeah, Jenny, Jenny revealed herself as quite a fearsome creature, and um, I, I, you know, just I'm just I'm just flipping back some of the things that you were talking about. I guess I kind of, you know, I, I, I integrated her in human society, but because League of Eternal Guardians is a mythos Cthulhu esque or aligned game setup, um, Jenny was was being pulled in that direction. So I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts about that on the show. So I think I think Jenny's a great one, a great one. Thanks very much for that episode. Again, please, more folklore. I, you know, I've always been quite impressed with the Lampton Worm. That story's got some interesting thing going on there. Anyway, that's all from me. Um... I hope you're both well. All the best. Thanks very much, Barney. Glad to hear that your game with Jenny Greenteeth went well and that you enjoy the episode. We always love to hear player stories. It's really good fun to listen to them. Yeah, and thank you for your suggestion of the Lambton Worm. We seem to remember we may have slightly touched on that earlier on, but I can't remember the exact episode, but there's every possibility we might wriggle around to covering that at some point in the future. So that's it for this episode. Thank you very much to all our lovely callers. There will be links in the show notes to their various podcasts. Highly advise you to check them all out. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can do so in a couple of ways. You can either leave us a voicemail message on SpeakPipe, again, link in the description, or you can leave us a message via our old Anchor account. Again, link in the description. If you want to send us an email, you can do so. The address is rdd-rpg-podcast at gmail.com. And you might feature in a future show. Or perhaps you want to tell us what you'd like to see in a future show, whether it be for the Folklore Fridays or just a more general episode. We'd love to get both your feedback and your suggestions. So until we see you again... Take care, stay safe, and keep gaming. Bye. So I'll let you... that.